0: Thanks so much for listening to the Clifton Church of Christ sermon podcast. We really appreciate you taking the time to listen and we hope if ever you're in Clifton, Texas, you'll stop by and say hello. We hope you enjoy this sermon. Today we're continuing our series called God in the Manger. It's a book, uh, the book is titled, uh, um, it's a collection of letters by Diedrich Bonhoeffer and we've been using it as a framework to help us think through this season where the Christian world celebrates the birth of Christ and the first week we talked about waiting and hoping, the idea of waiting for when Christ was gonna come and that when Christ came in the manger, that was the answer to that waiting and that hoping. Last week we talked about the mystery and the wonder of just how hard it is and impossible it is to wrap our minds around the fact that the God of the universe decided he was gonna come and he came as a baby in a manger among, among sheep and cattle and poor shepherds to a poor family and that when we try and give answers to it, That's not the right approach. The right approach is to go, I can't ever wrap my arms around this. And it makes me want to bow my knees and worship him in adoration of just how incredible this is. This week, we're going to be talking about the fact that when God came, he didn't just come, but he came to draw near and to redeem us. And the first thing I want to do to help with the illustration is, I've mentioned this before in my sermons, and this won't be the last time. But uh, for those of you who aren't aware, I... Uh, my church in 2017 flooded with Hurricane Harvey. Our church building flooded about two and a half feet and uh, I remember my apartment was 1.7 miles from the church building. Uh, now because it was on a highway you'd have to loop all the way down the highway to get there but it was 1.7 miles away and I, it was my job throughout the raining to keep going back and checking. Like well it hasn't gotten to the door yet. Well it's you know and eventually it was yeah it's, it's in the door and then it was about a week before we were even allowed to go into the building because of all the sitting water with E. coli and stuff. But within a one, I don't know these numbers exactly, uh, but I did at one point, within the one square mile radius of our church building, there's about 2,400 homes that were sitting in water. And uh, what I remember telling Catherine was, I don't really know what to do because my job, you know, normally I get up on Monday, I go exercise and I go to my job. And now there's no, nothing to go to. And so for the next... Two, three weeks, every day I'd get up, I'd ride my bike. Driving was incredibly hard because everything was muddy and everybody was trying to get back to their houses to fix stuff and so you just couldn't get anywhere. Cars were just parked everywhere. Roads that normally took you 20 minutes to drive down took you two hours to drive down. So I just rode my bike everywhere. And I remember the way I would do is I'd go into the neighborhood and I'd look for this. This is what it would look like when you would muck out those houses, you just rip out everything because everything was ruined. I remember vividly getting into houses where it's been sitting for a week because you couldn't get in. And so the the mold is up to the ceiling. I mean, it's not, you know, the the way they say is like, well, if you see where the water went to, cut, you know, three feet above that so that you cut off the mold. No, this has been sitting for a week. The mold's all all the way up. And what I remember was I'd I'd get up, I'd ride my bike, and there was actually this guy who came from Costa Rica, a guy who was a missionary in Costa Rica who came to Houston to help out. And for some reason, we got connected um, working at a house. And what we would do is I'd ride my bike. I'd see him. And we would just go along until we found the next house that didn't have this. Because if they had this, that meant someone had been there to help them muck out their house. But if it didn't, that meant that house hadn't been mucked out yet. And uh, what I remember is you'd go into these homes, and you'd see maybe five people, maybe three people, maybe 20 people. And the odds are you didn't know any of them. You know, They were all a neighbor or a friend, someone that just drove into town to help and you would just get to work. And I remember this guy, me and his name was David. Me and David from Costa Rica, we were a great team. You know, We'd get, get the carpets out. The carpets weighed like 1,000 pounds because they were all soaking wet. But anyway, the, the point of why I wanted to bring this up was one of the things I always remember was very difficult for a lot of people was letting people go muck out their bedroom or their master bathroom. And now you might be thinking like, why? Why is that tough? Because they did not like people seeing how much of a mess their house was. Like, for those of you who maybe are like, well, I'm a tidy person. That's not a problem for me. But some of you aren't the tidiest people. And the idea of a stranger coming into your room and seeing the mess, seeing how much junk you have, seeing how much... It was a very touchy thing for a lot of people. And I remember we'd, all, we'd have a few ladies from church who were really good at this who could talk to them and, like, soothe them. But for me and David, we kind of were like... I, I mean, just to be honest, we were like... We don't really have time for this. We got to just get in there and start cleaning this stuff out, you know? And what I remember though was, and and this is the the point that I want to make. We as people, we want help a lot of times. But whenever we hear, oh, you mean you're going to have to hear about all my baggage? Or you're going to have to see all my problems in order to help me? Never mind. I don't want help anymore. Does that make sense? When When you have to allow people into those intimate problems in your life, those things that really hurt, the places where you actually need the help, that's where he goes, oh, well, in that case, I don't, I don't necessarily know if I want help anymore, if it means that I'm going to have to be vulnerable with you, if it means I'm going to have to tell you about these things. And, and I saw that at play in every one of these houses. At every one of these houses, it was, well, no, 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 let me, how about I'm the one that takes care of, you know, the, the, the closet? How about I'm the one that takes, and they, we could have said, okay, sure. And that person would still be mucking out that closet today, four years later. But because we were there, because hopefully enough of the people were like, just hopeless enough that they were just like, yeah, okay, my pride's kind of gone now. I'll let you come and and work on my house. This is what I kind of want to make the connection to. The good news of Christmas isn't just that Christ came, but it's that he came near, near to our very problems, near to our our most vulnerable places for a goal, for a purpose. Not just to say, hey, I'm Jesus. I'm here. I'm pretty great. I hope you all like me a lot and hope you decide to go to church to be like me. No, he, he came from the get-go because he knew he was here to rescue us and to save us and redeem us. In Isaiah, we have this beautiful poem that you've probably heard before. And the setting of the poem is that the city of Jerusalem has been destroyed by Babylon. Babylon has come in. They have destroyed the city. Isaiah has been kind of telling the people, hey, if you don't change the way you're acting, Babylon's going to come and it's going to be a problem. And Babylon comes, destroys Jerusalem, takes many of the people into exile, into slavery in Babylon. But there's still a few people that are left in Jerusalem. Still a few people left in the city. And I want you to picture what that would be like. Picture being that person who didn't get taken into exile, but your city is in ruins all around you. And you're thinking, God, why did this happen? I thought you were supposed to protect us from Jerusalem ever being destroyed. Isn't Jerusalem your your throne? Isn't this where your temple is? Isn't, Isn't this where we're supposed to... Bless the world through Jerusalem, and yet here I am, and everything's in in shambles all around me. Everything seems lost, but there is a watchman that's on the city wall looking out, and he sees a runner coming, and the runner is waving his arms, yelling and shouting, good news, I bring good news. And this is where the poem, with that setting, think of Isaiah 52, 7 through 10. If you want to turn there in your Bibles, you can. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, to God's holy place, our God, your God, reigns. Listen, your watchmen lift up their voices. Together they shout for joy. So you imagine this watchman is looking out and he sees a runner coming. And that runner is coming, proclaiming, I have good news. Even though everything you see around you in this city looks hopeless, even though everything looks like we lost and that God is not in control anymore, I have good news. God is still reigning. God is still king. When the Lord returns to Zion, they will see it with their own eyes, burst into songs of joy together, you ruins of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord lay bare His holy arm. Uh, that phrase, uh, "to lay bare His arm," means to show His strength, and you can almost picture, like if you ask your nephew who's like five, "Are you strong?" and they're like, "Yeah, look how strong I am." You know, you've seen a five-year-old boy do that. "Are you are you strong?" and they pull up their sleeve, and they're... that's the idea. He's laying. God is laying bare His strength. Uh, it's a cool analogy. Um, In the sight of all the nations and all the ends of the earth, we'll see the saving, the rescuing of our God. The runner's feet are beautiful because, not because his feet have anything special to them, but you know what? A runner back then would probably have really beat up feet. You know what I mean? They did not have ASICs back then. This guy who's been running for miles to proclaim good news, his feet would look terrible, would be very scarred up. But the reason why they're beautiful feet is because they come bearing a beautiful message. And the message is that our God still reigns as king. God himself is going to return someday to this city and he's going to rescue and bring peace. And so what I want you to think about is you might be in a season right now around this time of year where you are looking around wondering, where is God? I feel God is far from me right now. Some of you may not be in that season. But some of you may feel like, hey, Drew, I've been in that season for like five years now where you feel this lack of God drawing near. And what I want to tell you is, is that part of the Christmas message that we need to proclaim every year is the fact that when we remember that Christ came, He didn't just come to be born, He didn't just come to draw near, He came to be born, to draw near, to rescue and redeem us. To be the one that says, God still reigns. And He didn't show up as a king, He showed up as a king that was in a baby, a poor baby, to say, Even though this doesn't look like what you were expecting as far as the redemption to look like, that's still why I came here. And God is still reigning. And every Christmas season we can remember that and think about that. So the Christmas, the good news of Christmas is that God, that Jesus Christ came near to rescue and redeem us. And the people who bring that message, we get to be people who still bring that message every year to people all over the world who are in places where their city is in ruins, their life is in ruins, and we get to say... I'm going to proclaim to you and shout with joy that your God, our God, still reigns. So the good news of Christmas, the second part, is not just that Christ came near, but that he came near to our brokenness. Uh, Steve's class this morning is pretty perfect in lining up with something I wanted to talk about, which is that if you look at the Gospels throughout, a constant theme is the fact that there were people that lived among in Jerusalem and around Jerusalem that were described as untouchables. Just people that, for some reason or not, you were not supposed to go near them. Whether it was the bleeding woman, whether it was someone with leprosy, whether it was someone who uh, was demon-possessed, Mark and Matthew, the gospel writers, go out of their way so much to say, these people that the rule is like, don't go near them or you'll be unclean. Jesus draws near to them, to their problems. Matthew 8, I decided to go with Matthew 8 instead of Mark 4. So thankfully, we're not repeating ourselves. Or Mark 1, we're not repeating ourselves. But in in Matthew 8, it says... When Jesus came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Instead of Jesus saying, get away from me. Don't you know you're supposed to keep distance from me? I I don't know how true this is, but I have heard stories that lepers and women who were bleeding had to wear like bells around their neck so that people were warned. Like, this person is unclean right now. Keep your distance. Like literally like, To like just make sure everybody knows, like get away from this person because you'll become unclean. And instead of Jesus' response being, hey, listen, you really need to go wash yourself. I can't be near you. This isn't how this works. He says, the the man says, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus reached out his hand and touched the leper. He touched him, which is what you would do if you were wanting to get leprosy. And Jesus touches him and he says, uh, the man was, or he says, I am willing. Be clean. And immediately he was cleaned of his leprosy. Then Jesus said to him, See that you don't tell anyone, but go show yourself to the priests and offer the gift Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Jesus, when he comes near in the manger, he doesn't just come near and say, Hey, I'm going to help you, but like stay away. He comes near to our brokenness. And he touches us and makes us clean. In Isaiah 6, I've, I've preached on this before, but in Isaiah 6 we have this famous passage where Isaiah is in the throne room of God and he's just blown away by God's holiness and his presence. And he says, God, I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. And you would think the response would be, okay, so don't you know God don't kill me. And what does God do? He, he brings out a burning coal and he touches his lips. And God comes from the holiness to Isaiah and makes him clean. I mentioned in that sermon that we live in a world in which if you took something that's unclean and clean and you touch them together, the, your first thought is this unclean thing just contaminated this clean thing. But with Jesus, it's the other way around. With Jesus, it's my goodness, my love, my holiness, my grace, my mercy is going to contaminate your brokenness and your sin. Hallelujah. And the only way that that works is for them to come near, come close to each other. Um, God does not call us to be pure, but He comes near. God does not call us to be pure before He comes near. God draws near to us, near to our sin, to redeem us and to make us pure. This is what's happening in the manger. Some of us want Jesus to rescue us, just like the people in Harvey wanted us to help muck their houses, but we don't want to reveal our problems to Jesus. Some of us say, God, redeem me, save me. Oh, well, let me, let me look at this really rough part of your life. Okay, well, <laughs> let's stay away from that, God. Like, I don't want people to know about that, God. But God says, if you want redemption, I've got to draw near to you. And we see that in Jesus coming, in God coming to redeem and rescue us through Jesus coming in a manger. This is a, a great quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer about this idea of Jesus coming and re- near to us to redeem us. Lord Jesus, come yourself and dwell with us. Be human as we are and overcome what overwhelms us. Come into the midst of my evil. Come close to my unfaithfulness. Share my sin, which I hate and which I cannot leave. Be my brother, the holy God. Be my brother in the kingdom of evil and suffering and death. God. I need you to draw near to me. I need you to draw near to my, my sin that overwhelms me, my unfaithfulness that I can't avoid. I need you to be near to that, to rescue and redeem that. Uh, There was a movie that I watched recently, I actually, I thought about this for this sermon and then realized that a movie had come out, watched the movie, and then was just blown away. It's a National Geographic movie called The Rescue. For those of you who don't know, a few years ago, there was a famous story that the world was watching as 13 boys were trapped in a cave in Thailand. 13 teenage boys were trapped in a cave. Here's a picture of, of the opening of the cave. So the way this worked is back then or not back then, still today, Thailand has these caves. And this is in a rural area, and these boys were all on a soccer team. Their coach was with them. And they were on their way to a soccer game, and they, they were kind of near this cave. And anyway, it started to rain, really rain. And when it really starts to rain, these caves will flood. And so these boys had to get further and further back in the cave to get away from the, the flooding, okay? And I, I remember hearing about this story, but when I watched this movie, the movie's called The Rescue. I can't recommend it enough. And I remembered just realizing, how did I not know this was going on in the world? Like This is a huge deal. And what happens is they realize these boys are missing. And the government starts to say, how can we find these boys? And there's a man there in Thailand who loved to cave dive in this cave, which is where you go into caves with scuba gear, like a crazy person. And you're swimming around in these dark places in confined cave spaces, swimming around. It was his hobby. And he basically told the government official, he said, we have one shot at this. Here is a name of the world's best cave divers. We have to get them here. So I'm not going to go into the whole story, because you should watch the movie, and it would take me too long. But I was blown away. Catherine couldn't watch, because she couldn't handle them being in these dark caves uh, underwater. Um, But I just the whole time I, I watched with my jaw open, these boys were in the cave for eight days before anyone found them. Not, not like, oh, well, we know they're in there. They knew that they were in there. They just, for, it was eight days before the scuba divers could find, these cave divers could find the boys. And by the time the last boys got out, it had been 18 days of them in this cave. After eight days, when they found them, they were able to start taking some food to them, but they realized two major things that were a problem. Their oxygen levels in this little cave. Imagine, imagine living for eight days like on this stage with 13 other teenage boys. I know, right, I know. <laughs> the oxygen levels were so far down that they were like, we've gotta get them out or they're gonna die from oxygen deprivation. They, the, the, the fear though was, how do we get these boys out? Because basically, I want you to imagine, they, something had happened earlier. I am telling more than I probably should but something happened earlier where there were these four men that were in the cave also but further closer to the front of the cave and they tried to teach them how to you know use the scuba gear to get out and it supposedly it was like 30 seconds of swimming and those men basically their natural instincts just started fighting off the divers immediately just wrestling with them and, and it was like this fight to get them out. And so these cave divers are like we can't it was, it's a two and a half to three hour swim from where the front of the cave to where the boys were. And they were like we can't keep these boys from not panicking at some point. And so a doctor actually had to sedate the boys with injections to get them to pass out put a mask on their face and then swim for two and a half hours with a passed out 13 year old boy and not have them drown while they're underwater. It, it, the movie is incredible. But here's, here's the reason I want to bring this story up. Over and over, the theme I kept thinking of with this sermon is the way the world, you should have seen the way the world came together to get these 13 boys out of this cave. The U.S. government's there, these U.K. divers, Australian government's there to rescue these 13 boys. They, they literally Thousands of volunteers came to try and move waterways up in the mountains so less water was running into these caves. They were pumping out, I think they said, 1.3 million liters of water a day to try and keep water from getting more and more into the cave. Literally, they moved heaven and earth to try and come and rescue these boys. And this is what Jesus, God did through Jesus Christ. He came and he moved heaven and earth so that Jesus could come and be among, among us to rescue us. And one of the things that I kept thinking the theme of this movie too was you had these guys that cave diving was their hobby and yet they were the only people in the world who were trained to do what needed to be done to scuba dive to these boys to get them out. When Jesus comes it's not just oh well you know anybody could have done this. Oh well God could have saved us in any way. The message of Jesus is this is the only way. I'm going to be the one that's got to draw near to you. And there was um, there are two Thai Navy SEAL officers that when they found the boys, they were going to try and get to the boys and deliver them food. Because they weren't trained, they ran out of oxygen on the way there. And they were stranded with the boys for the last eight days before they got scuba out. But the thing that I remember thinking is that is Jesus. He's the one that says, in order for me to rescue you, I've got to come and be with you. I've got to be near you. I've got to be in the exact same spot as you are. But because of my relationship with God, He has given me the power to say, yes, I'm sitting in this same fear of what's going to happen, but I know because of my God that He's going to get us out of here. He's going to bring us out. But it's not someone who's like, hey, y'all, I'm going to help. It's someone who draws near into the very place where you are, into the very situation that you're in, into the brokenness, and says, I'm here beside you, and I'm going to get you out of this. And one part of the story that I also, you know, of course the movie isn't a Christian movie but you can't watch it for me and not think of all sorts of Christian connections but there was a Thai Navy SEAL who had retired and came out of retirement because he wanted to help and he's the one person that died during the entire operation and I remember thinking and, and of course they, they bring out this emphasis all along, this person in order for those boys to be saved, he was willing to lay his life down so that they could come out and they could be home and, and here's the last thing I'll say before I wrap up Whenever they were deciding which of the boys was going to get to go out first, they picked the boy that lived the furthest away because they thought he could be the one that tells all their parents that they're okay. Isn't that cool? All these kids are thinking about their parents and they thought, let's pick the one that lives furthest away because on the way home he can tell everybody about. And this is the story of the gospel. This is the story of the shepherds in the field. This is the story of spreading the good news that Christ has been born. Go out and tell people That you were saved, you were redeemed, and God came near to your brokenness, saw your brokenness, didn't say, oh, well, you're untouchable, I'm not going to draw near to you, but embraced you, said, yes, I am willing, be clean. And then you go out and tell people about what Christ has done for you. This is uh, another picture, I should have gone to this. This is a picture of them going into some of these, you know, openings. Uh, The video, the movie has incredible footage of this entire thing. Uh, And by the way, you should watch it, uh, if you haven't heard me say that. This is the quote. God comes into the very midst of evil and death and judges the evil in us and in the world. And by judging us, God cleanses and sanctifies us, comes to us with grace and love. God wants to always be with us. Wherever we may be, in our sin, suffering, and death, we are no longer alone. God is with us. Emmanuel. The world waited for the Messiah to come, And the world is in awe and wonder at the fact that God came into this world as a poor child. And today I want us to think about how we look forward, we look toward the celebration of Christ's birth and we remember that he didn't just come near for the fun of it. He came near to save us and redeem us. And the rescuing only happens when we allow him to come near to us and then we realize that in the midst of his coming near and drawing near, he didn't just come near and say, okay, I'm, I'm going to help you. He came near and entered into our very brokenness. And it is through that brokenness that we're set free. If any of you would like to know more about being set free from your brokenness, about being redeemed by the one who came to redeem us, I'd encourage you to, to come and talk with one of us or talk with one of us after the service. And if any of you have any prayer requests, elders will be standing at the exits while we stand and we sing this song.